this is Anna Callahan, and you are listening to Incorruptible Massachusetts. Our goal is to help people understand state politics. We're investigating why it's so broken, imagining what we could have here in Massachusetts if we fixed it, and reporting on how you can get involved. Today, I'm interviewing Craig Altimos from 350 Mass and Jacob Stern from the Sierra Club. Jacob Stern has served as a statewide organizer for Massachusetts Sierra Club and liaison to the Mass Power Forward Coalition since 2017. He manages several of the clean energy campaigns and the chapter's political endorsement process. Craig Altimos co-founded 350 Mass for a Better Future in 2011 and has served as its executive director since that time. Before starting it, he co-founded and led Students for a Just and Stable Future, a statewide student network that engaged students at over 15 Massachusetts universities on climate policy. What a pleasure to talk to these leaders in the environmental movement. The environment has been one of my core issues since college. I was a zero waster back in the 90s before it was cool and before it had a name. I'm glad it's finally getting the attention it deserves, although of course not in political circles. At the state level, small incremental changes are being proposed, but none of the sweeping changes that are necessary. So I was very excited to hear that these powerful environmental groups are working with a coalition that centers communities of color and labor unions as equal partners in crafting the policy details of a robust, visionary Green New Deal for Massachusetts, which they hope will be completed about a year from now. These organizations also have a healthy attitude toward leadership in the House. They understand that one of their main roles is to build the movement outside the building. They do have 501c4 arms that endorse candidates, and they also work to pressure elected officials by calling out the ones who need to be called out and working with those who are pushing environmental legislation. You'll hear them talk about policy, coalitions, and how we get from where we are to a Massachusetts committed to a habitable planet. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Sierra Club and 350 Mass. Hey there, I have the great pleasure of being here with uh, Jacob Stern from Sierra Club and Craig Altimos from 350 Mass. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Yeah. We are going to talk about uh, environmental legislation at the state level and what we could have here in Massachusetts. So um, first I would love it if each of you would just go ahead and uh, let us know a little bit about your organization and what your mission is. Sure, yeah. So 350 Massachusetts is a statewide volunteer-led climate action network here in Massachusetts. We have 17 chapters and six affiliates around the state, so from the Berkshires to the Cape, from the North Shore to the South Coast, who meet together every two weeks or once a month in their communities to figure out how to advance local change in their municipality as well as statewide change together. And you know, we also dabble in federal politics to the extent that that is... Uh, that level of action is on the table for us, which is minimally at the moment, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so you know, we, we've we've helped get Massachusetts off of coal, working with Sierra Club and others on that campaign. Um, helped stop new pipelines. Have been advocating for renewable energy expansion with some success, um, and are currently really focused on, on paving the road to a Massachusetts Green New Deal. Wonderful. And uh, uh, I have the distinct pleasure of working for the Massachusetts chapter of the Sierra Club. So we are uh, part of the larger national organization with 3.5 million members and supporters across the country. Here in Massachusetts, that number is obviously smaller, but still over 100,000 people who read our emails uh, in the Commonwealth. Um, and we, we, we do a lot of the same work as uh, 350 Mass. 
um, pushing the state towards a goal of 100% renewable energy, pushing for environmental justice, pushing for clean air, clean water, and access to public lands. And we do that with a, uh, a wide range of volunteers who come from all over the state, um, often meeting here in our office in Boston or taking action in their uh, hometowns as well. Uh, we also push for change uh, through the elected uh, election process, endorsing candidates, supporting candidates who care about these issues for uh, local, state, and federal office. Great. Um, I want to quickly, because you just said you endorse candidates, does 350 endorse? Or? Uh, so our, our 501c4, 3 mm -hmm. Mass Action, it, it's younger than the Sierra Club's uh, 501c4, but we, we definitely do endorse candidates now, yes, absolutely. Wonderful. And, and how, do you, how do you work with candidates? Do you have any ways of uh, keeping your candidates on track after they have gotten elected? Yeah, uh, at, at the Sierra Club, uh, we have a great program for municipal leaders, especially. Um, so, you know, folks who are serving on city councils, on town select boards, um, or even occasionally mayors. Um, we do uh, four or five times a year um, local regional meetings um, where we're able to um, talk to these folks. We bring them, essentially bring them into, we call them summits, but they're essentially little roundtable events where we talk through some of the policies that they need to know at the state level and then what actions they can take as a local official to push for renewable energy in their city or town and then also talk about what, how they can push the governor because also Charlie Baker listens a lot to municipal leaders. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and uh, similarly, I mean, we don't have the, the same structured format, but I think, you know, our, our volunteer leaders, our strength is really in our volunteers and so our volunteers are very good about continuing to meet with their elected officials after they've been elected to hold them accountable to make sure they understand our priorities. Um, you know, happily, I think that the folks that we tend to endorse are not the kinds that need to be held accountable. That they're, yeah. they're you know, authentically the champions who are really excited to promote these issues because they understand the importance of climate change and climate justice. Um, but but certainly, I think for, for those that we haven't endorsed, so that we you know, there's also a lot of, of uh, follow through and, and follow up and, and attempts at accountability. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's a really good point. I. And I, what I find is the folks we work with, it's accountability is not quite the right word, but because these uh, these issues are so complicated and there's mm -hmm. so much mm -hmm. knowledge that's front loaded, um, that just coming into them, coming to them and saying, "Okay, here are the five to ten bullet points you need to know to talk intelligently about these issues," that's really greatly appreciated. Knowing that they can rely on us, just like mm -hmm. you know, they rely on 350 Mass as a source of knowledge. Absolutely. One one thing that I think we find is that people get into office, and no one who gets elected can know everything about every policy. <laughs> so they do need help, and so it's really great to hear that you guys can provide that kind of support. I really want to start talking about big picture. What in, could we have in Massachusetts if we had a really great state legislature, governor, what do you think Massachusetts could be doing, and what do you think Massachusetts should be doing? Um, well, I think to me it's it's less about what we could have and what we need to have is the way I like to look at the problem. And what we need is is to be completely off of fossil fuels, really within the next decade, um, if we want to do do right by our fellow humans that we share the planet with, to say nothing of, of the other species, um, and particularly you know, the most vulnerable among us. Um, and so that means an entirely renewable electricity grid, which is absolutely something within the power of the state to accomplish. 
Um, I, I think the, the, the recent MBTA board proposal about electrifying all the trains and having so that every commuter rail train is station is visited by a train every 15 minutes is exactly the kind of upgrade of our transportation infrastructure that we need so that we get more people out of automobiles. I think for the automobiles that remain, they need to be electrified. Um, again, I think public transit should be low cost or free um, to, again, to really incentivize people using that. Um, I think, again, really prioritizing environmental justice is something we absolutely need to do to make sure that the communities of color and low income communities that have really suffered the disproportionate burden of pollution over the past you know, 100 plus years are relieved of that burden and, and, uh, and then have no worsening of that as we, you know, to the extent the state continues to, to worsen at places, it should not be on those communities that have already had to, to experience so much of that, those impacts. Um, and yeah, again, I think, you know, we, we know how to build buildings now that don't need heat, um, that they can be heated by the occupants of, the, by the body heat of the occupants and by computers or the machines inside of them. And even so, here in cold Massachusetts? Even here in cold <laughs> Massachusetts. And we not only know how to build buildings that way, we even know how to retrofit buildings so they do that. Um, and so that's what we need to do is just have this massive, you know, net zero plan so that all new buildings are constructed to not need heat and to not use um, to have a net zero energy footprint. And is that passive housing? Is that the term for it? Uh, that, that is a term for it. That's okay. a particular, that's a very technical definition, mm -hmm. but, but that's basically, yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. I, it, uh, I would second everything you just said. Uh, I, I think really the sky's the limit. You know, I mean, since we're talking about an imaginary uh, future government that really um, prioritizes these issues, we, you know, we, we could go as far as we want, but um, I, I like to look at other states and what's already happening around the country um, mm -hmm. because, you know, what, what we're advocating for in Massachusetts isn't, isn't beyond what's already happening. It's already, the implementation's already started. And no, I mean, nowhere's, nowhere I think we're going far as we need to, to really address the scale and scope of the crisis. But um, in terms of other states that have already made huge commitments around renewable energy, uh, California, Hawaii, New Mexico, Nevada, Washington, um, and I believe Maine have already committed to 100% renewable energy. Um, New York just just put forth a huge package of policies around renewable energy. And um, Virginia, where the uh, Senate and House delegates flipped last night, is looking, for, looking forward to putting forth some really aggressive climate laws as well. They already had an executive order around 100% renewable energy. But now they can back it up with some binding legislation, which is really exciting. So let me poke into that Virginia thing a little bit. Yeah. So Virginia had a, correct me if I'm wrong, Democratic governor yep. and Republican majorities in the House and Senate That's until correct. yesterday? Just yesterday. Okay. They won't be so, seated for a little while, but yes. And so now that they have what's called the trifecta, right? The yep. Democratic governor, Democratic House, majority in the House, Democratic majority in their state Senate. Now they're saying because they have that, they're going to pass 100% renewable energy in the next who knows what exactly, but they're going to pass some real environmental legislation. Now, what do we have here in Massachusetts? Do we have a, we don't have a Democratic governor. No, we don't. No. But we have super majorities, is that yeah. right, in the House and Senate? Correct. And, and the, our governor is one of the rare Republicans who acknowledges that climate change is happening and says we need to do something about it. Yeah. So, so, so we we it seems like this is not 
the only thing required <laughs> to pass these things, and no. that perhaps our legislature is not. But let me ask you this question. So the, you mentioned six other states that are more, have better environmental policy than we do. Is that reasonably accurate? I, I, I wouldn't know as broad to say as that, but certainly they've made these commitments to 100% renewable energy. They've made commitments that we haven't yeah. yet made. Yeah. Um, do you think the people of Massachusetts would be behind making this these kinds yeah. of changes you're I, asking for. I think I think without a doubt there was a, a great WP, WBR poll that was commissioned two years ago, and I, I'm going to misquote the the statistics. I can't remember them exactly, but it showed overwhelming support for um, you know uh, dealing with the uh, climate crisis and pushing for renewable energy policies and halting the growth of fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, and the most notable part of the poll is that actually the majority of voters polled would pay an extra $10 more on their electric bill if it meant more renewable energy. That's putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah. yeah. And the exciting thing is that you know the price of renewables are coming down, so that, that trade-off is becoming less and less necessary, even though people are willing to make it. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you see? I mean, we're talking big picture here. Um, I know on the national level they talk about that this Green New Deal would require a jobs program because there's so much work to be yes. done. What what do you see happening here on the state level? Is that a similar concept? I think a lot of jobs will absolutely need to be created. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking talking about electrifying the, the commuter rail, we're talking about expanding public transit, if we're talking about, again, if you, we really need to, to retrofit every single building in the state that's older than five years. And even some of those that are have been built in the past five years have not been built efficient enough. Um, and, and, you know, that's not a thing where you can take a, a, an office building or take a house and ship it to no. China and say, retrofit this for us and send it back. Like, that is jobs on the ground in yeah. every single community in the state, at, you know, along with installing solar panels on roofs and, and, you know, over, you know, parking lots. And, you know, offshore wind is this multi-billion dollar industry waiting in the wings to come on board. So absolutely, there's going to be a huge amount of jobs and be creative. I think there's a really exciting component of, uh, about this crisis that requires a lot of work and that work needs to be paid for um so so yes yeah, so i think you know the way we're looking at the green new deal is that it is a climate jobs and justice package that you know, really equal parts addressing climate change creating jobs and, and addressing the various forms of racial and, and social and economic and gender and indigenous and immigrant injustice that have been baked into our system for for centuries i would love to poke into that a little bit more are there any specific bills that deal with the kind of climate injustice that you're talking about? So there is an environmental justice bill that would codify into law an executive order that requires all of our state agencies to consider environmental justice as they're making decisions, um, which is kind of more of like a, a policy or like a, a process approach rather than a, a substance um, uh, a fix to all of the problems because um, again just because they're making future decisions that doesn't address the existing injustices unfortunately which there are many right. mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and again we are we're working with the, uh, the, the Green Justice Coalition which represents a lot of these communities of color that have been at the front lines of, of fossil fuel and other types of pollution for decades um, to start thinking through how we bring together the right folks including people like the Sierra Club uh, to a table to figure out what would a Massachusetts Green Deal look like? How, how would we go about addressing climate change and racial injustice and jobs at the same time? We, that, that policy is still in formation, and the hope is to, f to work on that over the next year and to file that 
in 2021 when we start the next legislative cycle. Um, so, so, so more ahead for, for the details on that. But I think you know, for folks looking to advance progress now, the environmental justice bill is, is the one, it's the vehicle. Yeah, I, I guess I would just add that, you know, that we have some great piece of legislation that both our organizations are supporting. I'm happy that we're, we're in very close alignment about our legislative priorities this year. Um, but I don't, none of those, I think, quite matches the scope of the Green New Deal. Obviously, you know, Massachusetts doesn't have the same, you know, power to take out. Um, um, you know, go into debt to do some these projects that would be required for the Green New Deal. Uh, but there are definitely policies that we could bring together to bring in all the different um, all, all the different constituencies that are part of the Green New Deal, labor and uh, justice organizations, and many, many more um, to craft an equitable policy. Um, I guess the only the only th- other thing that I would add is when we when it comes to talking about. Um, environmental justice, it's, I think it's very difficult to pass an, you know, a law, a piece of legislation that solves environmental yeah. justice. You know, that's <laughs> a more intractable problem than saying we're going to build you know, this many wind turbines off of New Bedford. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there are a number of projects, like Craig was saying, that you know, need action now. So a lot of, I think, what we do, you know, what we do, what we're continuing to do as a movement, not just Sierra Club, is play defense and prevent some of these dirty projects from being built. Compressor Station and Weymouth, uh, Dirty Incinerator and Saugus, name probably half a dozen more if I thought about it. But um, that's that's the that's the play right now. It's interesting to think about um, Bernie Sanders' marijuana policy platform because he specifically talks about exactly how he is going to provide grant money to people who were you know incarcerated for misdemeanor. Uh, marijuana possession and allow make sure that they are the ones who are going to benefit from new and, and it was like wow like that is like a very specific um, yeah. justice you know uh, marijuana justice way to look at it that I'd never thought of before so I wonder if there are ways be, since there will be so many jobs mm-hmm. like maybe there are ways to incorporate that kind of thinking into yeah. the jobs programs that the, the communities that have been most impacted by climate Injustice could be the people who you know are prioritized for that. I don't know. I'm just just talking off the top of my head. <laughs> I, I think it's a, a funny metaphor. That's not one I've heard before. But um, I, I mean, th- there's definitely there are a couple of bills right now that would um, make solar, for example, more accessible to low income communities. Mm. Um, and certainly with uh, Speaker's GreenWorks bill, uh, which potentially could bring a lot of money into different municipalities. Uh, thinking about how we want to allocate that money based on the communities that have been historically disadvantaged um, and make sure that those are prioritized for receiving funds to do some of this infrastructure and actually reduce, in, in doing so, reduce the amount of air pollution in their town. Yeah. One would hope. Yeah. Great. Um, so you, you started talking about coalitions, um, and I'd love to hear you guys, your thinking about sort of inside-outside strategy, right? What does it look like to build a movement on the outside that can help us push this forward um, and how it relates to the sort of inside politics game? Yeah, well, so I think as, as noted, both the Sierra Club and 350 Mass have 51C4 arms that are endorsing candidates. And, and I think we are uh, due to have a, a good chat soon about which you know primary challengers it makes sense for us to, to throw our collective weight behind. Um, to, to you know, look to how we can change the balance of power within Beacon Hill, um, but you know there also are a lot of groups that that, that really are not focused at all on the, the inner workings of the building. Um, and I think like the youth climate strikes, I think is a good example of that, where we saw 
tens of thousands of folks across Massachusetts and millions around the world participated in the, the most recent September climate strike. The next one in the U.S. is going to be on December 6th. Um, and, you know, I think Extinction Rebellion is another new group that, that has, uh, you know, started shutting down bridges and taking direct action just to wake people up to the crisis. Again, really separating themselves from the, the, the details of which bill and, you know, which legislator is backing it and more just helping awaken the, the, um, the public to, to the, the, the scope, scale, and, and urgency of the crisis. Um, and and you know, Thrifty Mass, I won't speak for the Sierra Club, is, uh, was proud to, to partner with both of those groups on, on some of their actions um, while we're also working with groups, including the Sierra Club. And again, thankfully, we, we are part of multiple coalitions together. Um, that are working to, to you know do that that hard less at times sexy work of of trying to get bills out of committee and, and you know and, and, and signed into law um, and, and so I think for us like we, we appreciate you know we need to do both the inside and the outside I think within the inside game we and, and I think I put this here from the cat in this category are more on the outside players of that of you know willing to to call uh, you know a strike a strike and a ball a ball when the house you know, throws a ball instead of a strike, um, and that doesn't always earn us uh, all of the friends <laughs> uh, when we are honest about how, you know, a bill falls short of what science and morality are, are demanding uh, of us in this moment. Um, but again, I think that that's part of, of our role. Um, and I think the exciting thing, I mean, it, at times it can be pretty frustrating that, that the, the climate movement has so many organizations that are part of it in this state in particular, like there are dozens of organizations active on climate policy in Massachusetts. Um, but I think that the nice thing is that there's a diverse ecosystem where there are some groups that are better at sucking up to house leadership and, you know, uh, being buddy-buddy with them and, and playing that more inside, relationally-based game. And then there are some like us that are more focused on building outside power to, you know, still be polite, but to apply some polite pressure when it's needed. Um, and then again, those that are totally outside of the building. So I do think that there's a robust ecosystem, and I do think all of those strategies, in my mind, are positively contribute to to good outcomes. Yeah, I mean, you that's, uh, hit the hit the nail on the head there. I think um, I think it's been really great to have the partnership of the Sunrise Movement, especially in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. the youth powered organization pushing for a Green New Deal, a climate jobs and justice. Um, nationally, but they have a great presence here in Massachusetts. I guess they were founded in Boston, and um, they've been doing a great job, you know, with helping with the climate strike, and also have started now pushing directly on our state leaders. Because um, I, you know, it's it's very clear for anyone who's in this work for more than you know a few minutes that we're not seeing the level of action that we we need to, to address the scope of the crisis at the state level. So um, uh, it's been very, very fun and interesting to work with some of these youth leaders to talk about how we can push our state officials to do more, more quickly, because we are unfortunately on a time limit as well. Yeah. Be before diving into the policy side, which I do want to dive into, um, you specifically mentioned that there is a coalition getting together to try to put together a Green New Deal by next year. Um, can people get involved in that? Can pe how, what's the best way for people? It, it, maybe it's not that specifically. Maybe there are other ways people can get involved. So, so with that coalition, there, that we're still thinking through what the public engagement looks like. But honestly, there is a concern that we want to. There, there's a priority that we want to make sure that it is a balanced table. Mm -hmm. And I think the concern is that if we just invite right. everyone in, there's going to be a whole num huge number of climate groups and fewer labor unions and communities of color. Right. And we want to make sure that, again, that there's balanced representation in terms of who's on the steering committee and, and so on. 
Um, but there, we definitely want to make sure that there are avenues for people to bring ideas into that. And certainly in terms of fighting for it, we will absolutely want to welcome everyone to fight for it. But again, we want to make sure that the voices of directly impacted communities and labor unions are really centered as we're crafting the actual policy details. So lots of opportunities for engagement once uh, the, the policies are set and we start fighting for the bill. I think some opportunities for engagement, but I think still TBD on, on you know, helping to craft those, those policy uh, structures. Yeah, I, I think that's the right approach. And as someone who works for a very large amount of organization, also like, you know, Syracuse has been called a, a big green. That's kind of the somewhat derogative term. Um, I mean, it's, it's challenging to kind of step back and uh, let some of that happen and know that you're not always at the table, but trusting that those groups are going to come up with fair and equitable policies. Um, that's the approach that I've tried to take as well. But for folks who want to get involved now, I mean, I don't know when this will air, but um, uh, we're both, both 350 Mass and Sierra Club are part of the Mass Power Forward Coalition. It's a coalition of it was over 100, over 200, over 200 yeah. uh, in, environmental groups, uh, solar developers, local groups, faith organizations, um, covers, covering a broad spectrum, all committed to action around clean energy, climate, and environmental justice. So um, anyone who's listening to this and wanting to get involved, there's join one of those 200-plus organizations. Um, really, the sky's the limit. And if you're, you're part of an organization that's not part of Mass Power Forward, you could also push your organization to join Absolutely. Mass Power Forward and, and to fight through that existing organization, too. Great. So let's talk policy. Let's talk... And, and I want you guys just to feel free to spend a few minutes kind of back and forth. What are policies that we are that we have now, like as bills that we want to push forward? What are ones that are maybe not where you want them to be? What what is the um, the feeling at the state house? Who is what's preventing us from moving things? Just give us a feeling of like what's happening either in the house or the senate, um, and how we can start moving more things forward I think I mean I think one of the challenges too is, is we're at the point in the session especially where there's a lot of question marks about where bills are you know because they're in a limbo between committees so I don't have all the answers I don't think probably Craig has all the answers <laughs> I, uh, all I, I wish that I wish that we did um, but I can I can talk generally about some policies we want to see move forward I, we already talked a little bit about a commitment to 100% renewable energy um, that's definitely a top priority for both organizations if I can be so bold and then um, uh, the environmental justice bill that Craig mentioned a few minutes ago um, is something we've both been prioritizing. And then there's also a, uh, a carbon pricing bill, um, which I could go into detail, a little bit of detail about, essentially would be a uh, surcharge on items that uh, fossil, are fossil fuels. And then that money, instead of just being added to the state budget, we mostly rebate it back out to consumers. Um, so the idea being here, if you are someone who owns five cars and drives a lot, you're probably going to be paying a little more for the gas. But if you're someone who doesn't own a car, take public transit or bikes, um, you're actually making money off of this rebate. And there's some special provisions there as well for businesses and rural communities to make sure they're not adversely impacted. Um, and then I think most importantly, at least from Sierra Coast's perspective, the most important part of that bill is actually it sets aside part of that money for green infrastructure. So actually funding some of those renewable energy projects we need to see. Um, those are probably among our, our top three priorities, um, legislatively speaking. Obviously, Sierra Club supports a wide range of environmental issues, plastic pollution, toxics, land conservation, transportation, but 
we probably don't have time to get into all those. And I'm also not the expert on those, so I shouldn't speak out of turn. Uh, and again, I think J Jacob covered the, the majority of our, of our policy priorities. There are two additional ones that, that I think we differ from the show up a little bit in terms of prioritizing that I will add. Um, one that I'm very excited about, and again, Circle is supportive of, um, is called, uh, well, it's a proposal that's being led by the HERO Coalition, which stands for Housing and Environment Revenue Opportunities. Um, and so basically back in January, Governor Baker proposed an increase by 50% of the real estate deeds excise tax, um, which is basically when you sell a home or a property sold in Massachusetts, there's a tax that you already pay. And he was proposing increasing that by 50% to fund climate resilience. Um, and after that proposal was aired, which was done without consultation of environmental groups or affordable housing groups, the affordable housing community recognized that they had been looking at a similar source of revenue to fund affordable housing. And so they asked if we could work together. We said, of course. And it turned out that that, that tax has not been increased in like 50 years in the Commonwealth. And that even if we double it, we are still below four of our five neighboring states' tax rates. Uh, so we'd be below New York, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Vermont if wow. we doubled our real estate deeds excess tax. And so that is our proposal that we should double it. Again, still be below four of our five immediate neighbors. Um, and then split the money, half of it, toward climate resilience, uh, and then the other half toward affordable housing. And, and we see affordable housing as a, a key part of, of climate change uh, in, in that, again, if you can afford to live in the community that you work in, then you, the energy costs of you having to go to work and back are much lower, which is, you know, whether that's, you know, it allows you to bike or walk or take public transit to work instead of having to drive a car, big win for the environment. And then also from a, a resilience perspective, you know, when there's a heat wave, when there's a hurricane, when there's a winter storm or flood, the, you know, studies have shown that that people who who are, are who live in socially well-connected communities make it through those storms much better than people who are living in socially isolated communities. And so again, if, if you are being forced out of your community where your neighbors, your friends, your acquaintances all live and have to relocate 30 miles away, and then you get hit by a heat wave, you're going to be much less resilient without that social network to call upon for support. Um, and so again, we see that both in terms of, of preventing climate impacts from getting worse and dealing with the climate impacts that are coming, affordable housing makes a lot of sense as a climate strategy. And so we're very proud to, to stand with affordable housing groups in calling for a doubling of, of the, the real estate tax uh, to, to fund both of these priorities, which are generated about $150 million a year for each of climate change, climate resilience, and affordable housing. Um, and so there are a number of different vehicles that we're trying to, to uh, advance that through, but, but certainly if folks, you know, we're, we should be rolling out a website soon for the Hero Coalition. Um, and again, welcome there. I think a couple dozen groups that have signed on to it so far, but certainly welcome additional uh, organizational signups for that as well. Um, and, and then the other priority um, is that we're also a member of the Raise Up Massachusetts Coalition, which I assume y you and your listeners are familiar with from other... Yeah, um, I don't know what my listeners may or may not be familiar with. Let's give a little... Uh, a little so I, I would, intro. in my mind, the Raise Up Mass Coalition is the most progressive coalition, uh, sorry, the most uh, powerful mm. progressive coalition in the state, that they've won the $15 minimum wage, earned sick time, and earned paid family medical leave. And one of their, and they've endorsed the Hero Coalition, the Hero Campaign, which I'm very excited about. Um, I made it a priority for them, but, but one of their other priorities is around uh, the millionaire's tax. Um, so putting an extra 4% uh, tax on income above $1 million per year. So basically your first million is taxed at the same rate as everybody else, and then 
any money you make above that gets an extra 4% tax and, and uh, to use that tax to fund public education and transportation and hopefully you know green transportation is something we'll be continuing to discuss as we get closer to the implementation of that. Um, but that, that's a campaign that we fully support as you know a progressive revenue generation for the Commonwealth um, again which I think for education and transportation that there's the definitely some green um, investment opportunities we can make but generally just see that as, as a good thing to, to be supporting. The one policy that I realized that um, uh, we I mentioned earlier briefly but didn't dive into is the Speaker's Green Works Bill, mm -hmm. which we haven't seen as a priority in the same way as some of our other piece of legislation because it doesn't it doesn't make the same types of commitments um, that we are hoping for or generate revenue like your work with the Hero Coalition uh, that would be a designated source of revenue. But this, the Green Works Bill is a bond bill that we mostly use around adaptation resilience is my understanding with some money going towards efficiency projects local renewable energy I believe it's up to over a billion dollar bond um, so I guess I guess Sierra Club's perspective is where, where we've been really pleased to see the speaker prioritize um, this issue because historically there haven't been too many large bills around climate change climate resilience clean energy um, so even to see action at all I think is it's exciting to us um, I think that we would definitely like to see some changes, some amendments, um, and preferably a designated source of revenue around these things. Um, so we're definitely going to continue to be in conversations of how we can improve that bill or how we can pass some additional legislation that will kind of set a larger framework um, around these, uh, these new projects. Now, there's anything you'd add to that? No, I uh, l lar largely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's a the exciting thing for me is that I think well, one of, an additional exciting thing is that there's the potential to unite Greenworks with this this um, hero idea and to yeah. have basically the revenue that we generated from the deeds excess tax service the debt yeah. that that the Greenworks bond uh, would create. And so I think that there's the potential for a really um, nice little marriage of, of those ideas to. To, to be able to, to do some deficit spending yeah, sooner and, and, and bigger for the Commonwealth and then to have a dedicated revenue source so that we are taking care of repaying that debt. Because I think a lot of these investments will prevent future damages, right. yeah. but are not necessary. Like if you build a, a, a wider culvert, that means that you're going to prevent flooding, which is going to prevent, uh, prevent a lot of property damage to both private property and public property. But it's not like that, that you can then monetize that prevention of damage to repay the investment for. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no new generate new revenue that you're like, oh, look at all this money we saved because we didn't have to rebuild this building right. um, that's now just sitting here. I mean, but even though you, you are you are saving that money, but it's not money that is identified and and, yeah. and, and discreet. So I have to admit, I once went to I was in um, Las Vegas for a conference, and I went around with a friend, and we we did anti betting. So we would. Say I'm gonna I'm gonna not bet twenty dollars on red thirty, and then when it wasn't red thirty, I was like, woohoo, save twenty dollars. Kind of calculated how much money we didn't lose, and it just makes me think of that a little yeah. bit. Like yeah, you know, all this stuff is really money that we are going to lose for yeah. sure. Yeah. We're gonna be in more debt if we don't do these exactly. things, but it's hard to make that sale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other thoughts about like what what are the hurdles? What's what are the obstacles? What's kind of stopping us from getting this stuff done right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think some of the challenges that we face are the same challenges that you know uh, any advocate in Massachusetts faces. You know, there's centralized power in the state house. There's um, you know bills move forward in incrementally. Usually, the legislature picking up one maybe two big issues a session that they want to focus on. 
Uh, this session is education. Last session, criminal justice. I mean, there are a few other things as well. Um, so getting legislators to focus on these issues, which, as we've said, are complicated. They're not intuitive. Um, and they require a lot of background knowledge that most people don't have. Uh, you know, I don't expect elected leaders to have an outside source of knowledge around these issues. It's, it's very challenging. Um, and uh, on top of that, the, I think some of the leaders in the state house have been, they've been lukewarm or you know generally supportive, but haven't been championing these issues, haven't been running running on climate issues like we've seen in some other states. I agree to all, all of that. I think the only thing I, I would add is is that I think that, that there's um, uh, just uh, not just within the state house, but across the, the state, a, a a lack of urgency mm-hmm. um, uh, on on this issue that, which I actually I think is actually bubbling up among the people. Um, I was actually really pleased there. There's a, a, a poll recently of, of voters that um, showed that at least for Democratic voters, uh, if you you know they're given three options of would you rather spend two trillion dollars over the next thirty years to fix climate change, or would you rather spend five trillion dollars the next twenty years? Or ten trillion dollars over the next ten years to fix climate change, and support for the policies. All of them had majority support, significant majority support, but the total amount of support increased as you increase the expenses and shorten the timeline. And so, I think the public has a sense that climate change is a problem. We need to fix it now, you know, as opposed to thirty years from now. But I think one of the the challenges that that many climate advocates who have been and environmental advocates who have been doing this work for decades feel like they have had to shrink their ambition and not try to solve this in the next decade, but feel like we need 30 years to address it. And again, this is a very big technical challenge, lots of, of moving pieces, very complicated, you know, in terms of, you're talking about totally restructuring society in some mm-hmm. ways and our economy. Um, and, and yet, I think that, that that instinct of people of like, spend more money now and do it right now and, and, and do it now, it is the right instinct that I think uh, yeah, I think we are being held back by some degree because people feel like we don't have the exact plans totally laid out as to exactly where every single solar panel will fit and where every battery storage site will be located. And I just think that you know that that's not the way society really should look at massive undertakings is that we need to have the entire plan figured out before we begin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think when we've looked at, at really big, you know, Endeavors, you know, which I think the most obvious for countries like going to war, you know, like with with World War II, they did not demand to see precisely what day we would catch capture Adolf Hitler and you know Emperor Hirohito in Japan. Like they didn't need that level of specificity in their plans to agree that yes, we should fight Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. That that you set you figure out what you need to do, and then you, as you do it, you f- you figure out how you're going to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think that we need that same level of resolve of this is an issue that we need to address and just set about making it happen. And I think we don't have that resolve present within the political leadership at the moment, which is really unfortunate because we need that resolve. I think the exciting thing is that that resolve is building among the people. Right. Um, and I think, you know, which is honestly being helped along by every, you know, uh, Forest fire out in California with every hurricane that batters mm-hmm. the Caribbean or our coasts, um, you know, and I think as there are more droughts and food riots and refugee crises and so on, that that, that pressure is only going to to grow. Um, and so, but the question is, does that grow quickly enough right. for us to really? 
prevent you know really big catastrophes from unfolding around the planet um, and, and, and potentially the collapse of civilization itself. And I think that is a, a very open question at the moment. I think I mean I think I think it's difficult for folks um you know change is difficult any kind of change even just you know convincing my um roommates to start composting is difficult you know <laughs> so when we, we talk about you know restructuring our systems restructuring the way we do business it's going to affect everyone at all levels of society that's really scary and you know it kind of rightfully so you know I think we spend a lot of time in our day-to-day life trying to you know mitigate risk and um, we like consistency and routine, and uh, we're in a position right now where we're going to be faced with that one way or another. We're going to be faced with big change and a big upheaval, no matter what we do. If we do nothing, that's going to happen anyway. So we're, we're, we're choosing between two different types of change, essentially. Um, but, you know, that action is hard in itself. So I, I, think that's, I think that's the struggle that, you know, a lot of folks who care about the issues kind of think about. And then um, all of our elected leaders are starting to realize as well. Um, but we do we do these trainings with our um, grassroots leaders all across the state, um, and one of the big um, thesis points I always try and leave them with. So if you learn anything from this training, please know that we're not we 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 aren't missing the technological solutions here. We have the technological answers. Like, sure, we're still developing better battery storage, better wind turbines, but it all exists now. It existed even five years ago. Um, what we're really missing is the willpower, the political willpower to make this stuff happen. So don't come out of this training thinking, I need to go get a master's degree and, you know, start developing better technology. No, go call your legislator and say, this is important to me. I want I want you to know that I vote based on what my elected leaders do around these issues. Great. So my last question, I touch on this in every interview. Um, it sounds like we need more fighters, uh, more leaders uh, in the House and Senate. Um, What's your advice for people who might be thinking about running for office at the state level? Mm. Run. <laughs> yeah. There's never there's never a downside to running. Massachusetts has some of the uh, lowest turnover of any state in the country. And you think about, I'm going to go back to Virginia for just a second. Uh, Virginia says we're going to pass sweeping climate re- uh, legislation now because they might not have control of the House and the Senate in a few years. They hadn't had it. They hadn't had Democratic trifecta since 1994. Mm. Um, that's a long time. We can't wait another two decades to make that happen again. So uh, in Massachusetts, there isn't that same feeling of urgency because it will always be next session. Democrats aren't going to lose control of the House and Senate in Massachusetts. It's not going to happen. Um, they might actually gain some seats in 2020, it's looking like. So I think that challenge, even not even a winning challenge, is good. Anytime we have an opportunity to hold our elected leaders accountable and make them feel that they need to focus more on these issues is a good opportunity. Um, and please give us a call. Let us know you if you want to run. <laughs> totally, totally echo everything that Jacob just said. And, and yeah, I think, you know, I, I took a, a course in grad school about running for office and managing political campaigns. And, and the, the professor, the instructor was a, a campaign manager. And he had the sense that basically, you know, he would never support challengers. He only would support incumbents or empty seats um, because it was hard to win. And obviously, I think we've seen many examples recently of challengers defeating incumbents. Even uh, yesterday. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but to me, I think that totally loses the sight of the important role elections play in society. 
Oh. And it's, you know, yes, winning is, is exciting and important and, and wonderful when it happens, but I think you can absolutely change. You can make change by running and losing, mm. but by elevating issues and by showing current office holders that as long as they continue to delay action on certain issues or fail to lead on certain issues, that they invite a future challenger. And you know, the last thing a politician wants is a challenger. And so if they know, you know, and I've heard anecdotes of, of, of situations where, you know, politician X votes with, I think it's fair to say, you know, I've heard this from neighbor to neighbor, which is a progressive organization, that, that they found politicians would vote for them about 30% of the, vote along their priorities 30% of the time. They would run a challenger, and even if that challenger didn't win, then just the fact that they'd run a challenger that, you know, that was a competitive, it was a real challenge, um, they would start then voting with them 70% of the time. Wow. Because they wanted to say, hey, back off, okay, I, I get it, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, I'll, don't challenge me again, right? Yeah. And I think, like, the, the, you, so you can absolutely change both, like, the grassroots public understanding of issues by running and having a platform to educate your fellow citizens about issues of importance, um, but you can also directly impact the behavior of the current office holders, even if they win re-election, and then obviously there's the chance that they don't win re-election and that you get to replace them, and, and then obviously can dramatically change how they engage in, in, in public office. Um, but, but to me, that that is a win-win scenario, um, you know, of, of getting out there. And obviously, you know, it, it takes some courage and it takes uh, some hard work. But um, and I think you know, climate change is one of, of of several issues where courage and hard work are really needed right now. And, and if you have listeners out there who are thinking about it, absolutely, please. Uh, jump in and, and reach out to Jacob and I, and, and I think we would be be very particularly if you're if you care about climate change and, <laughs> and, and, and the future of life on Earth, and then we would be most likely very excited to, to work with you on that. Yeah. Wonderful. This has been so great, really enlightening, um, and and I so appreciate the work that you guys are doing. There is nothing more important right now. So thank you. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah. Wonderful to talk to you.